And as you guys are taking your seats, let's do the smart thing and have a quick word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, we ask for your, your hand to be upon the message today. As always, Lord, we pray that you would teach, we would listen, let's let your spirit guide and direct. Um, Lord, just pray that you'd be with all the things going on in the back in the classrooms, Lord. Your hand just be upon that. And Lord, thank you for the time to be here. And Lord, for those that couldn't be with us today due to traveling or what have you, just busy summer months here, just keep them safe and bring them back safe. In your name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, Luke chapter 1. Continuing our study here through the book of Luke, this is our third week studying Luke, and we are still in chapter 1. But chapter 1 is 80 verses long, so bear with me, please. So what's happened is, week 1, we were introduced to Zacharias and Elizabeth, and they had a miracle baby. Elizabeth is well advanced in years, as the Bible says, and it was a neat miracle baby, and their baby would grow up to be John the Baptist, who was a fulfilled prophecy out of the book of Malachi. So that's a big deal. Last week we were introduced to Mary. Now we all know Mary, and she has the virgin birth of Jesus. Obviously, fulfilled prophecy there of the Messiah. So we have these two amazing miracle babies. Now, biblically speaking, Mary and Elizabeth are related, and so therefore John and Jesus would be cousins. And so what happened is last week, as Mary was given this wonderful blessing, we also talked about how that would actually be a tough blessing to take sometimes. Because the Bible actually uses the word here, that she was a little, um, as the one word says, she was troubled at this. you got to remember, Mary was probably at this time 14, 15, 16 years old. So here she is, betrothed to be married, which carries a much bigger term than just engaged now. So she was almost ready to be married, and she had her whole life ahead of her, and here she is waiting to marry Joseph, who must have been a pretty good guy, and all of a sudden she finds out she's pregnant before she's married with God's child, and she's carrying the Savior at the age of 14, 15, or 16 years old. That's a lot for anybody to handle. And we talked about how neat of an example she was, because as it says in verse 38, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. She says, Lord, this is where you called me to do. She goes, I accept this, I take this. Or as in week one, when Zacharias was given the wonderful prophecy that his wife was going to have a baby, Zacharias responded with a lack of faith. So we talked about how the difference between them was. We have an amazing miracle baby in chapter one of John the Baptist in our first week. Next week, we were introduced to Mary, who now with Jesus. Now, Mary and Elizabeth come together. Verse 39. Now, Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Remember, their relatives. Verse 41. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped into my womb and for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. What a neat picture this is of these two gals coming together. I mean, this is just absolutely amazing. You have Elizabeth, who's very old, that shouldn't have been able to have kids anymore, now carrying a baby who is a fulfilled prophecy can become John the Baptist. Now you have Mary, who's so young who wasn't supposed to be pregnant yet. She's not married yet. And so there's this amazing virgin birth going on here, and she's carrying God in her womb. So they come together, and what happens when they come together? There's just this joy. Look at this repetition here. You see in verse 41, the babe leaping in the womb and being filled with the Spirit. Then you see, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then you jump ahead to, once again, this idea of verse 44, the babe leaping in the womb. What a neat picture this is. This is so neat when you see this coming together. These two amazing stories that God has brought together to do this. It's a pretty neat thing. Well, what we want to talk about with this is this joy in meeting and knowing Christ. 
These people, when they come together, there's a joy here with the Savior being together. There's a joy with Elizabeth realizing Mary is carrying the Savior of the world. There's a joy that we're talking about. Wednesday, we talked about this a little bit, the joy of the gospel and, and knowing Christ. You guys got that PowerPoint up there, Matt? You want to put that up? We put this quote up on Wednesday night. We've been going through uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. We talked about this. To effectively share the gospel, you must first experience the gospel. So what we were talking about was to really go out there and tell people about Christ. You first have to know Christ personally. Because if we sit here and say, hey, go tell people about Jesus, you may sit there and say, well, why? Well, look what Christ has done for your life. Don't you want the same things that Jesus has done for you to be done for other people? Well, I guess. If you don't really know who Christ is, if you really don't know what Christ has done for your life, there's never going to be a, a burden on your shoulders to go tell other people about Christ. Because unless you know him personally, why would you want to go tell other people about him? I love my wife. I think my wife's amazing. I tell everybody about my wife. Now, I like your wives. I don't tell people about your wives. That'd be creepy. I tell people about my wife. I know her. I married her. And so therefore, since there's something personal, I am excited to share about my wife and my family, etc. Well, see, when you know Christ personally, you want to share that with other people. So we talked about that on Wednesday. Well, we're going to build on this. You guys can go ahead and take that quote now down if you don't mind. Because what happened is, why were they excited when they met each other? Because they realized who was meeting. John the Baptist is meeting Jesus in the womb. The guy that was prophesied at the end of Malachi to be the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, is in the womb of Elizabeth. And now the Messiah of the world is in the womb of Mary. They realized what was going on. This was a big deal. And so there was this unspeakable joy and blessing because these people were so excited to see what God was doing. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 2. I want to talk about this joy and excitement in meeting Christ because this is what happens. Let's just be honest. Sometimes we're really not joyful and excited about meeting Christ. Sometimes when we get up, it's not like, oh my goodness, I can't wait to go to church on Sunday morning. I can't wait to read the Bible. I can't wait to sing worship songs. I can't wait to share Christ. I hope I run into a non-believer at work today so that way I can tell them about Jesus. Sometimes we don't have that excitement. Sometimes we don't have that passion. And to be quite honest, after we walk with the Lord for a while, sometimes it becomes a little ho-hum. Well, look here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Let's just stop right there. Look at the compliments given in verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your labor. Look at verse 3. You have persevered. You have patience. You're laboring. You're not becoming weary. That's a pretty good pat on the back from Christ himself. He goes, I know you're out there serving. I know you're out there trying. I know you're out there working for me, doing things for the kingdom, and you're working hard for the kingdom. But, verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You can become so busy serving God, you forget why you're serving God. You can become so busy doing the things of the Lord that the idea of your relationship with Christ almost takes a back seat because you're too busy serving God. Well, this is my, my week to teach in the back, so I, I better get back there and teach. You forget the reason you're teaching is to influence young kids for Christ. You're just one to serve. Or I'm going to go do this, I'm going to do that. This happens in life. We get so busy with the things of life that our relationship with Christ starts to take a back seat. Now, it doesn't mean all of a sudden we're falling away from the Lord. It doesn't mean our marriage is falling apart. It doesn't mean problems are happening with the family and the kids at work. But sometimes we're so busy doing things, maybe good things, the most important thing takes a back seat. I've seen this a lot. I've seen it in different areas. I've seen it in Donna Mine's life and other people's life where they start having kids 
And so kids become such a big deal to them. So they start focusing so much on raising their kids right and being an effective dad and being an effective mom. And the kids overtake their life. They forget they're a born-again believer first. Their relationship with Jesus trumps their kids. Well, I'll, I'll take care of Jesus in a second. Right now I'm so busy with these kids. No, 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 you're out of perspective. I've seen people do it with work where they dangle overtime in front of them and they start working so many hours. They forget their relationship with Christ. I've seen people get a project going on at home or a project on the side. And once I get this project done, no. See, we can get so busy, verses 2 and 3, doing maybe good things, we forget the importance of just knowing Christ and building that relationship with Him. For, for me, I love my wife, I love my kids, and I love this church. But most important is Christ. And I can't be an effective husband unless I'm first an effective believer. I can't be an effective father unless I'm first an effective believer. And I can't be an effective pastor unless I'm first an effective believer. My relationship with Christ is first, then my wife, then my kids, then this church. And what happens is I can get so busy serving the church, Jesus almost gets put out to the side. I get so busy raising my boys to be godly young men, Jesus gets put off to the side. I can be so busy trying to be the best father I can be and husband, and Christ gets put off to the side. Let's remember the excitement and the joy of just knowing Christ. And see, what happens is, unless we know Christ, we don't understand exactly what we're talking about here. The joy, I, I don't get what you mean. What's the big deal? I'm here. I'm at church. I read every now and then, and I study every now and then. Yeah, but don't you want more? See, one of the dirtiest words in the English language when it comes to Christianity is contentment. I'm content. Wife's good, kid's good, house is good, job's good. It's not bad. See, the problem with contentment, you don't realize what you're missing, and the problem with contentment is you're really coasting. You don't realize it. I was telling the 830 service, I can remember as a kid growing up, we used to come home from church on Sundays, and our church that we used to go to was only a couple miles from our house. And we would turn off uh, Road 65 and turn onto Road K. And we lived on Road K. And I can remember my dad would used to floor the car there for a while. And then when we got close to home, he'd put the car in neutral. He would just coast all the way in. I always used to think that was the coolest thing in the world as a kid, just to see that. So I tried doing that with Dawn and the boys. Dawn didn't find that as cool, but that's another <laughs> story for another day. But I used to think that was so cool. Now, I don't know a lot about cars, but even though the car is moving forward, even though we're heading towards our house, even though we're going to pull into our driveway, the engine is not working. We're just coasting. And that's what happens a lot spiritually. You're moving forward. Well, it looks like you are. Like I said, kids aren't bad. Marriage ain't bad. The job's not bad. But your engine's not engaged. It's Christ. You're just coasting. Well, but it looks good. So you don't really realize there's nothing, that there's a problem. See, when I look at this thing with Mary and Elizabeth, I see this joy. I see this excitement. I see babies leaping in the womb. Like, wow, Lord, I want that. I never want to take my walk with you, my relationship with you for granted. You don't need to turn there, but I'm just going to share this passage with you. It's out of Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness. So let's stop there. That's God speaking to the Israelites. I remember you, the kindness of your youth. He says, I remember when we were young and you wanted to be with me. The love of your betrothal, when we were married to each other and your excitement, your love for me. When you went after me in the wilderness, when you chased me down, when you followed me, when you wanted me. But then the rest of Jeremiah 2 turns into this chapter of, highly paraphrased here, but what happened? You don't want me anymore. See, and this is what happens spiritually. There's a time where hopefully we want the Lord, we desire the Lord, and there's an excitement there for who Christ is. But then that excitement starts to wear off because, you know, we've read it before, we've served there before, we've heard those songs before, I've been to church before, and all that other type of stuff. And what happens is God sits up there in heaven saying, wait a second, remember when you used to chase after me? Remember when we used to be young and in love? Remember when you used to follow me? 
And I see this with Mary and Elizabeth. God help us to have that same excitement, to be excited to be in the presence of the Savior, to leap of joy when we see what God's doing, to have that excitement. See, Mary had that excitement. So since she had that excitement, it takes us to verses 46 through 56. It's because she's so overwhelmed here with excitement and joy. And because these two gals got it. These gals got it. Hey, I'm carrying John. Malachi talked about him. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. You're carrying the Messiah. You're blessed. Look at verse 42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. See, Elizabeth got it. And she said, Mary, you're blessed. You're special. Now, I don't want to make a big deal of this, but I think it bears mentioning, because what happens is sometimes... There's the two extremes that happen with Mary sometimes. You have sometimes that Catholic mindset of Mary being without original sin, ascending into heaven, and then you almost have this far Protestant concept of, well, let's not talk about Mary because we don't want to elevate her at all. Well, wait a second. Look at verse 42. Blessed are you among women. Note, and we said this last week, it doesn't say blessed are you above women. Blessed are you among women. This, this gal was chosen to carry God in her womb and give birth to the Messiah. Boy, she is blessed. And Elizabeth saw that. Mary saw that, which then takes us to this wonderful praise here in verse 46. I'm going to read verses 46 through 56, then we'll come back and we'll break this down verse by verse. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded my lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him. From generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. The assumption is in verse 56, it looks like that uh, Mary stayed with Elizabeth until John was born and then she headed back home. Now let's talk about this, this uh, song of Mary here. I think it's interesting. I think it's important anytime you get a passage of Scripture like this. We've got about ten verses we're going to look at. Always find the key point. Key points found in verse 1. My soul magnifies the Lord. Some of your translations may say, uh, gives praise to the Lord. My soul glorifies the Lord. That's what that word magnify means. This is what this next ten verses is about. This is Mary just giving praise to God. This is Mary and Elizabeth realizing the situation they're in and saying, wow, this is big. And we're just going to praise God. What are we going to praise God for about? First thing they're going to praise God about, verse 47. My spirit is rejoiced in God my Savior. God's your Savior. Rejoice in that. Rejoice that God died on the cross for your sins. Anytime I run into somebody that's battling depression or discouragement, and they come to me and they have something to the effect of, you know, what's the point of living? What's the point of doing in this? There's no point in any of this. I always say, wait a second. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. That gives you some joy in life. That gives you some hope in life. It's because Christ died for you. So the first thing that Mary praises God for in verse 47 is that her Savior is being born. Never forget, no matter what you're facing in life, no matter how dark and difficult it gets, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You have a Savior that gets you through. You have the hope of eternity and the hope of heaven. Right now, you may be facing some dark times, and some of you may have come into this building today, and your life is very depressing, your life is very discouraging. Jesus died for you, and there's hope and eternity in heaven for that. That's the first thing that Mary says, I praise God for. Next one, verse 48. He's regarded the lowly state of his maidservants. See, the next thing is when you start thinking about Jesus dying for you, what does that do? Verse 48, that humbles you. That humbles you because you realize, wait a second, God died for me. And you start thinking about what that really means and what that really represents is that God himself came down in the form of a man and died for me. 
That is a humbling thought. That, that is, that's a lowly thought where you stop and think of who God is and who I am. You don't need to turn there, but just write this down. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 4. It says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Now think about that. You know I like astronomy. I like going out the telescope. And you look up at these planets and these stars, and you think about the vast distance that we're talking about. You think about the, the heavens and what that means and represents. Then you stop and you think, God cares about me. And even more so, there's what, six billion people on this planet? When I stop and pray, God hears my prayers. That's amazing. So when the psalmist writes, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Lord, who am I that you even listen to what I have to say? My goodness, that humbled Mary so much, she goes in verse 48, you have regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. Who am I that you even pay attention to me, Lord? Who am I that you hear my prayers? Who am I that you would die for me? Wow, that leads back to praise and glory. I'm nothing. Because once we realize this, verse 49, it's all about him. For who is mighty and has done great things for me and holy is his name. It's all about God. It's not about us. It's all about him. He's mighty, he's done great things, and he's holy. Now, just be honest with yourself for a second. Think of the last time that you had a woe is me moment, a little pity party moment. I'm willing to bet in that last woe is me pity party moment, you were not thinking about the mighty things that God has done for you and how holy his name is. I know I don't. I know when I have those little woe is me pity party moments, I'm not thinking about how great God has done and what wonderful thing he's done. I'm just thinking about James and how the world is against James and no one cares about James and all this other type of stuff. Of course that's going to lead to discouragement. Of course that's going to lead to depression. See, Mary says in verse 49, it's all about him. The great things he's done and holy is his name. Now, if you're sitting there saying, well, fine, he hasn't done any great things for me, verse 49, jump back to verse 47. He's your savior. That's a pretty great thing that he's done for you. And I don't know how you're going to take away his name being holy because God is holy. See, when we only think of us and what's wrong with us and how no one likes us and how bad my marriage is and my job and my kids and my house and everything, that's going to discourage you. But when you stop and look at verse 49 and you think of the mighty things that God has done and how holy his name is, that gets your focus back on him. That's where it's supposed to be. Which then takes us to verse 50. And his mercy is on those who fear him. Now that word fear... When we think of fear, we think of literally shaking. And it's actually that word in the Greek is phobia. That's where we get our English word for phobia, for fear. Now, but this word fear in a biblical sense means reverence. So when I fear God, it means I respect him and revere him because he's God and I'm not. And what happens here, there's four reasons that Mary says that she fears the Lord, respects him and reveres him. I remember when I was a very young Christian, I had a brother come to me and he was telling, we were talking about prayer. And he said, just remember when you pray, you're not only talking to your Savior, you're not only talking to your friend, you're not only talking to your brother, you're not only talking to your father. Those are all great things to think about. He goes, but you're talking to the God of the universe that created the universe. There's a little bit of respect there. That's something I've always remembered, that yes, he is my father, my friend, my brother, my Savior, but he also created all this. And the Bible says he holds my very breath in his hands. So there is a reverence, a respect for who God is. So what do I do with that reverence and respect? What do I revere and respect about in verse 51? He has shown great strength with his arm. He's powerful. He's absolutely powerful. That's enough to respect him. That's enough to revere him. His strength is unlimited. Now, my strength is very limited. The way I handle situations is very limited. His strength is unlimited. Which takes me to the next one, verse 52. 
He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. When I read this verse in verse 52, I thought of that passage in James 4. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. You realize one of the biggest sins in the church today is a lack of humility with God. Because what happens is, we're not trying to be outright prideful, but we're not humble in realizing, as we just read here, that his strength is unlimited in verse 51. See, because what happens is I have these moments where I don't really consider it pride, but I don't know what other word it is. It's a lack of humbleness. I face something difficult in my life, just like you guys do. So the first thing I do is I can fix this. I try to figure out how to fix it. Well, that doesn't go real well because my strength is limited. So then I go to my friends and family or people at church and say, hey, what do you think? What do you think we should do? And I try what they say. Then lastly, as a last resort, I finally go to the Lord and throw my arms up in the air and say, Lord, I can't. What do you want me to do? Now that's kind of a prideful thing. Because it's prideful to think that, number one, I can handle it. It's prideful to think that, number two, that you guys can handle it. Then lastly, number three, I finally realized maybe I should let the Lord take first shot at this. Oh my goodness, help us as believers to do that first, to go to the Lord first. Because what happens is my lack of humility thinks that I can still fix problems. And I hear it all the time in my life and in your life. You guys come to me and you're struggling with something and you open up and you start venting a little bit, you start saying what's difficult, then you catch yourself and you say this, I, I know I can fix this, I know I just need to work at it, I know that it's going to be okay, I'll just do this. But God doesn't, you don't need God then. Sounds like you got it all figured out. Truth of the matter is, if you had it all figured out, you wouldn't be calling me. We can't do it. And just take a look at yourself real quick. How many times are you saying, I, I can do this, I can fix this, I just need to get through this, I just need to try harder? You can't. His strength is unlimited, yours is limited. It's really pride to say that I don't need the Lord's help to do this. We just need him. Look at verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. I like that idea, filling with good things. Turn, if you will, with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. I want to talk about this idea of him filling us with good things, seeking the Lord there. Matthew 5, please. Matthew 5. Look here at Matthew 5. We all know these passages, I bet. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Look at verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. A bookend with this verse, if you're taking notes, just write it down. It's Psalm 107.9. Psalm 107.9. It says, He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. See, really what we're doing in life is trying to find a reason and a purpose in all that we do. That's really what we're trying to do. And as, as Mary wrote here through the Spirit back in Luke, he filled the hungry with good things. Jesus said in Matthew 5, if we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we shall be filled. Psalm 107, it says he fills the hungry soul with goodness. Okay. Who's the only one that can do the filling? It's the Lord. It is. Now we know this, we're saying this, we're preaching this, you're hearing this. You may even be underlining those verses. But why is it when we come to our life then, we still think we can fulfill our life with something else? I mentioned earlier, I love my wife, I love my kids. My wife and kids will never be able to fulfill me. They never will. Only the Lord can fulfill me. I love you guys. I love serving as a pastor. But you know what? If I'm looking at this church to fulfill some longing in my heart, no, it's Christ. Because I have to trust that if I'm stripped of everything, the only thing I have left is Jesus, I will still have everything I need through Christ. And that's what Mary sees. Her life just got turned upside down. She's a teenager who's now pregnant, and she has to explain this to Joseph and her family. This is not her plan in life. She was going to marry the good Jewish carpenter. She was just going to have a nice life. They were going to have kids, and they'd be happy. Well, 
God says, here's something a little different. That totally turned her life upside down. Like we said last week, the Bible says she was troubled, which that literally means she was agitated by these things. Jesus, we talked about last week how he was in anguish about things. You know what? You're going to get troubled about stuff. You're going to get agitated and you're going to get anguished. And it doesn't mean you're wrong. You're going to have things in this life that are going to depress you, discourage you, and bring you down. Your spouse is going to let you down. Your kids are going to let you down. Your job, your friends, your family, your pastor, your church. Everybody's going to let you down. And what it comes down to is that you hunger and thirst for righteousness in the Lord. You don't hunger and thirst for things. And we all know this. There's always going to be a bigger, more expensive, more fun toy. That toy's not going to fulfill. The only thing that will fulfill you, your kids, your marriage, your relationships, your, your anything, is Christ. And that's what finally fills you. See, Mary ends with this. Because she realizes that's all that matters. Is my Savior, the Lord that gets me through things. Boy, God help us. Because there's always an element of us that wants more, isn't there? You know, we got five boys at home, and I really don't know what we're going to do when they become teenagers. Because right now, they will not stop eating. They just won't. And I've had other people tell me that they've had teenage boys, and they said that they will literally eat you out of house and home. And so we're going to have five boys, and at one time, I think they'll be 19, 18, 16, 15, and 13, I think. So we'll have five boys that are all teenagers. Now, either Jesus will return and save me, or we're going to take a second mortgage. Because there's always a hunger. I mean, my goodness. I mean, you guys know. They can eat, and then an hour later, they're hungry. And it's like, I don't even know what to say. Um, point is, back to this. I was, See, I had a woe is me moment. See, get back to the Savior. Spiritually speaking, in life, you're going to be let down. I mean, seriously, you're going to be let down. We've all been in that spot before where you really thought that that gal is going to be the one that fulfills you. She's not. You know, you really thought if I could just get that job, that promotion, that, that's going to be everything I need. It's not. I mean, we've all had those moments. Three different passages in three different ways, and I bet if we looked harder, we could even find it more. Luke chapter 1, he fills us with good things. Matthew chapter 5, if I hunger and thirst for righteousness, I'll be filled. Psalm 107, he fills me with good things. What do you think the Lord's trying to say here? He's all you need. And I have met people that have been stripped of everything. Maybe lost kids, lost a spouse, lost the job. And then they realize the only thing they have left is Christ. And at that point, Jasper, you realize that's all you need. Mary realized it now at the tender teenage age years or whatever she was. That's why she says he has filled the hungry with good things. And the last thing that she says here, what's the last thing that she reveres God for? First one was verse 51, his strength's unlimited. Verse 52, the humbleness. In verse 53, he meets our needs. Look at verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. What verses 54 and 55 are saying is, this is fulfilled prophecy. So you've got to remember, we've always had Jesus. Oh, that's, we've always had Jesus. I mean, Jesus died 2,000 years ago. At the writing here of Luke, they had been waiting 4,000 years for the Messiah. In fact, they just got done with something called the silent times. When the book of Malachi ended, God was silent for about 400 to 450 years. And so, what was he doing? I mean, all of a sudden, what was he doing? Well, she realizes in verses 54 and 55, this is fulfilled prophecy. Now, what does that mean for us? All those times you pray and God never answers, he's not ignoring you. He hears. He's waiting for the appropriate time the appropriate place to give the appropriate answer. Do we trust him enough to know that? See, so often when we pray and nothing happens, what's God doing? Well, we just got done with 4,000 years waiting for the Messiah, and we just got done with 450 silent years. 
God was waiting for the appropriate time, the appropriate people, the appropriate place. And we had to trust that, just like Mary and Elizabeth have to trust that. Go back to what we talked about two weeks ago. With Elizabeth and Zacharias wanting that baby. How much did they pray for for a baby? They reached a point where they physically couldn't have kids. What do you think went through Elizabeth's mind and Zacharias' mind? Well, just wasn't his will, I guess. Guess we just have to trust that whatever happens is, is there. And did they give up? You know, I don't know. I don't know if they gave up or not. I, I, I think they kind of did give up. Because if they wouldn't have given up, I don't think Zacharias would have been so shocked when the angel appeared and said, you're going to have a baby. I think he would have said, see, I knew this day would come. I think he gave up. Now think about this. Now maybe you don't want to admit this because we're all spiritual giants here today. How many times have you given up on things? Oh my goodness. I've given up on people before. Lord, speak to their heart. I know they're going to get saved. Lord, I know that that, that marriage is going to change. Lord, I know that that kid's going to make better decisions. And I pray and I pray and pray. And after a while, oh, fuck no, I'll forget it. I give up. I shared with you a couple weeks ago. How when someone came up to me the one time and said, do you remember so-and-so got saved? We had prayed for this person forever. I gave up on him. And then they said, so-and-so got saved. I said, no, they didn't. I gave up. No, they, no. See, we give up so quick. Verses 54 and 55. God says, even though it's been 4,000 years since the first prophecy for the Messiah, even though it's been four to 450 years of silence, so I didn't forget you. Now, none of us here have struggled with 450 years of silence. We get frustrated when we struggle with 45 seconds of silence. Maybe some of you have struggled for 45 weeks, 45 months, 45 years. I don't know. But the Lord hasn't given up. You trust even when you don't see the big picture. Mary and Elizabeth are an amazing example of two women of faith that said this was so far beyond what we thought, planned, maybe even wanted. But God's plan is perfect and we trust and obey. And what a blessing that is. So first week in Luke, we're introduced to Zacharias and Elizabeth and their amazing baby that had become John the Baptist. Miracle baby. Last week, we were introduced to Mary virgin birth, the amazing baby had become Christ. Well, next week, John the Baptist is born. And then the week after that, we'll get into Luke chapter 2, Jesus is born. And then in Luke chapter 3, we start to see the ministry of John and Jesus together. And what an amazing thing it will be. Marvin, come forward here for the final song. I hope this lesson reminds you 